Welcome to the 61st episode of Coronavirus the Truth, a podcast that focuses on the facts surrounding COVID-19. I'm Jeremy Kaur, host of the popular New Books and Medicine podcast and CEO of an Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert led the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He's a contributor at Forbes.com, a best-selling author and a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business. His book, Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients, continues to receive industry-wide praise. All profits will be donated to Doctors Without Borders. Information on a wide range of medical topics can be found on his website, robertperlmd.com. Robbie, each week we begin the show with the most recent and relevant facts concerning the COVID-19 pandemic and its impact on American life. What happened and what does it mean? Jeremy, a little more than two years after the U.S. recorded its first death, the mortality has now passed 1 million Americans, according to the CDC. And it appears that the number of people who have lost their lives will continue to rise, approximately 330 people a day, or 120,000 a year, for the foreseeable future. That, of course, assumes that the future mutations don't make the virus more lethal or, on the other hand, that the unvaccinated and not yet boosted individuals don't decide to roll up their sleeves and become better protected. Globally, according to the World Health Organization, approximately 15 million people have died. And obviously, there are many more to come. The total number of cases is huge. Although we don't know the exact number, since the majority of infections are mild and people who test at home, they don't usually report the results when they're positive. For these reasons, in the context of Omicron, the total number of cases is becoming relatively unimportant. Given the high transmissibility of this variant, the combination of people who are vaccinated, plus those who've already been infected, means that the overwhelming majority of Americans have some immunity. In fact, a nationwide survey of blood donors done by the CDC estimates that by the end of last year, 94% of people aged 16 and up had at least some antibodies against COVID. At the same time, with breakthrough infections relatively common, higher transmissibility of Omicron compared to previous strains, and waning immunity of people over time, both following vaccination and infection, herd immunity which had been predicted by many policy experts a year ago, it's not going to happen. As a result, this virus will be with us for the foreseeable future. Consistent with what we predicted over the past few podcasts, this BA.2.12.1 variant, that's the most transmissible strain, is now dominant in the U.S. It accounts for 58% of new cases. The evolution of more transmissible replacing less means that the virus continues to follow the science, even if humans are distracted by emotions and politics. There's also some new data on long COVID and its association not only with severe disease, but mild cases as well. In fact, according to a recent study, 76% of patients with long COVID weren't sick enough to be hospitalized. According to the published research, They had abnormalities of breathing, coughing, malaise, and fatigue, 
months after their original infection. The particular study looked at 78,000 cases. They found that the people most at risk were women, more than men, and individuals aged 36 to 50. And the CDC reported this week that as many as one in five people who've had COVID experienced at least one of these symptoms consistent with long COVID months after recovery. And finally, in a large study conducted by the VA, vaccination was found to reduce the incidence of long COVID, but based on their data, it only reduced it by 15%. Assuming that holds up the need for a better understanding of long COVID and new medications to treat it are clear. The 50 million deaths worldwide is a much higher number than before. Can you provide some more details and context? Jeremy, as we discussed in previous Coronavirus The Truth episodes, in many countries, there's been a huge undercounting of deaths from COVID. The reason hasn't been deception, but the magnitude of the tragedy. As an example, the WHO estimates that nearly 5 million people have died in India, and that's 10 times the official count. The reason is that the majority of people died at home and a diagnosis of COVID was never established. Based on this revised WHO data, the US mortality remains higher than many countries in Western Europe and parts of Asia, but less than some other nations. When adjusted for population, Peru, Bulgaria, and Bolivia have the highest mortality rates. And these countries are followed closely by several European, East European nations and Russia. The WHO estimates that deaths from COVID in Russia are 3.5 times higher than the official figure. In North America, the US mortality is higher than Canada, but less than Mexico. Of interest, the countries that use social distancing and aggressive case identification and isolation, like Australia, China, and Japan, they've had fewer total deaths during the pandemic than otherwise would have been expected. And this can be explained this reduction in total deaths, which is the combination of COVID and other causes can be explained by how masking and social distancing reduces deaths from other infectious diseases like the flu. Robert, you mentioned China. What's happening there in the context of Omicron? Jeremy, China is facing major challenges. Its strategy has been case identification, contact tracing and government-imposed isolation of proven cases and quarantining of all contexts. This zero-case approach worked well in the context of the original virus and even in the first set of viral mutants, but the huge transmissibility of Omicron has made that approach almost impossible to achieve success without major harm to people and industry. You know, it's one thing to shut down a relatively minor city. It's another when that city is Shanghai with 25 million residents or Beijing, the nation's capital. The challenge for China is that the country is not focused on vaccination as its solution. And so far, few people have been infected. So there's limited immunity. Although Omicron is slightly less deadly than the original viral strain, it still is estimated to be eight to 10 times more lethal than the flu in unvaccinated individuals. And that of course is different than for the vaccinated people for whom the risk 
is only slightly worse, if at all, than the flu. As such, zero tolerance is the only approach the country can now take now at this current time without seeing a mass epidemic. And that, of course, would be lethal for people and politically embarrassing for the country's leadership. The impact of the current shutdowns in China will have global consequences. Apple, as an example, estimates that it will likely see a sales hit of as much as $8 billion this quarter. What are we doing about the global impact COVID-19 is having? President Biden promised world leaders at the second virtual COVID summit that the U.S. will share vaccine patents with other countries. These are the COVID-related advances that are licensed by the U.S. government at the current time. These would be shared through the World Health Organization, the WHO, and it would provide vaccine companies in other nations with the vital information they need to manufacture effective vaccines more easily and rapidly. In particular, the patents will be the ones that focus on mRNA vaccines, those that target the spike proteins. It remains uncertain whether this commitment will impact the patents held by the current American vaccine manufacturers like Moderna and Pfizer. At present, there are 1 billion people in lower income nations who remain unvaccinated and at major risk of contracting the virus and dying. To date, the U.S. has provided other nations with $19 billion in funding for vaccines and other treatments. I found the recent article in Forbes and accessible through your website, robertprillmd.com, fascinating. You indicate that Americans have decided that the pandemic is over, even if the CDC leaders like Dr. Fauci have concluded that it's not. Uh, everywhere you look, you can tell people think it's over. Can you explain your thoughts? Jeremy, what we're seeing in the context of Omicron is a huge number of cases, but relatively few deaths. Among people who are vaccinated, boosted, and in good health, severe disease is rare. As a result, people see becoming ill as almost something to expect, but they also believe that mild disease will be the expected clinical course. For this reason, they don't see an imperative to wear a mask or socially distance. They don't think it's going to make a big difference in terms of getting sick because they're convinced that they will become ill, and they don't see it making a big difference at preventing severe disease because they expect that they will not suffer in that particular way. And therefore, we're seeing a growing number of people, maskless in restaurants, on planes, and even at major Washington, D.C. political events, as we talked about in the last Coronavirus, The Truth podcast. And yet, despite how Americans are reacting, the CDC is recommending that one third of the country return to masking due to the rising number of clinical cases. What I said in the article is that strategy won't work when there's so much dissonance between how people see this problem and what policy experts are saying, people's behaviors will not change. As we discussed in last week's Diving Deep podcast, the result is that national policy experts are missing key opportunities that would work to reduce the mortality. Let me give you two examples. 
rather than encouraging all Americans to get the antiviral drug Paxlovid, why shouldn't we aim our efforts at the individuals with the highest chance of dying based on age, associated chronic illnesses, and immunosuppression medications? And then create, using modern technology, a simple one-click process so that they can get tested, prescribe the medication, and receive the pills so they can begin taking it as quickly as possible. Similarly, rather than continuing to tell everyone to be maximally cautious, when the reality is that they won't, why not use technology to help people decide for themselves what to do and create an app that would incorporate their personal risk tolerance and their health risk factors and based upon those two pieces of data, be able to provide information that they will follow. It's time policy experts accepted that one size simply can't fit all. You know, the challenge is that the CDC views the pandemic in the context of national numbers. While individuals see the risk of dying and extent of restrictions specific to themselves. The CDC's COVID roadmap suggests wearing masks until the death rate falls under 165 per day. That's about half of where we are. That's about half of where we're likely to be in the future. Most people perceive their risk as far lower. And given that this virus will be present year round for at least the foreseeable future, they're just not going to wear masks and socially distance forever. The currently circulating viruses, whether it's the BA2, the BA2.12.1, or even the BA.4 and BA.5 that are mainly in South Africa at this time, these are all strains of Omicron that are highly transmissible, but none of them are likely to lead to severe disease in vaccinated and boosted individuals. And we see this in Israel, the country with the most accurate data on both infections and deaths from COVID. There, there were over 17,000 cases reported last week, but only five deaths. That would be a mortality rate even lower than the flu. In many ways, how people perceive COVID and how they see the economy are analogous. When individuals see gas prices rise above $5 a gallon, they conclude that the economy is in trouble, no matter what the economists might say, about low unemployment and higher wages. When people know dozens of friends who tested positive for COVID, but had mild illnesses, and none of whom required hospitalization or died, they think of Omicron as an annoyance, not a death sentence. Robbie, as you know, I'm very interested in new developments relative to young kids, especially as school ends for the year. What's new? Jeremy, when it comes to kids, the news is very encouraging. First Pfizer reported that its vaccines were more than 80% effective in eliciting a strong immune response in kids ages six months to five years following three doses. These results in their clinical trials were follow up to the data we discussed in the past on this Coronavirus The Truth podcast. That in the context of Omicron, Two doses of the Pfizer vaccine just isn't enough. 
In this study, they tested 1,678 children under the age of five and found the vaccine was well-tolerated and highly protective. The FDA has said that its advisory committee will meet in June to consider emergency use authorization for both Pfizer and Moderna's vaccine in kids five and under. At the same time, according to a Kaiser Family Foundation survey, only one in five parents of children in this age group plan to go out and have their kids vaccinated once approval is given. Parents say they're taking a wait and see attitude until more information is available and the clinical experience is greater. More specifically, 18% say they'll rush out to get their child vaccinated, while 38% say they'll take a wait and see, and a whopping 54% say they just don't have enough information on the effectiveness and safety of the vaccine to make a determination for their kids at this point. If we move up to the next age bracket, the published data is equally positive. For kids five to 11, the FDA has approved booster shots for the Pfizer vaccine at a dose that's one third that of the adult dose administered at least five months after the second dose. In a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine, researchers showed an 88% vaccine efficacy from the Moderna vaccine following two doses when they compared the outcome to placebo. People can debate whether in younger children, the relatively low risk of serious illness means that this level of protection is unnecessary. But it's hard to argue that the dangers exceed the benefits, at least based upon all of the currently available data. Robbie, I've heard that the new oral medication against COVID-19 may not eradicate the disease. Is this true? Jeremy, you're right. And this is a perplexing issue. In a relatively small percentage of patients, initial treatment with Paxlovid seems to work great. Patients rapidly recover. But then what we're seeing in a rare case is that the person then becomes ill again a couple of weeks later. Fortunately, so far, the rebound cases have been mild with people reporting cold-like symptoms, cough, sore throat, but not becoming severely ill. It's not yet clear how contagious patients are who become symptomatic in this rebound fashion. There are two theories about why this relapse might happen. One is that the medication is given so early in the course of the initial infection that the patient doesn't generate an immune response. And then when the drug is stopped, the virus can begin replicating because there's no antibody resistance. The other theoretical explanation is that people prescribed the drug stop taking it before the infection is fully eradicated. As such, the virus then can begin replicating once the medication is stopped. Paxlovid works by inhibiting a key enzyme. It's called protease. And this is an enzyme that the virus requires to replicate. The pill, however, doesn't directly attack the virus. As such, both these explanations, that the drug is given so early or that it is stopped too soon, could result in reductions in symptoms followed by recurrent infection. But even if this happens, the patient would have a reduced viral load and a diminished chance of passing the infection onto others. So far, 
the likelihood of rebound appears to be low. In Pfizer's clinical trials, only about 2% of the 1,120 subjects who took the drug had a rebound 10 to 14 days later. And that compares to 1.5% of a similar number of volunteers who received the placebo medication for comparison. Jeremy, now that there's an effective medication capable of preventing severe illness in most cases, how likely do you believe it is that people who have refused to be vaccinated will take this medication? And for those who will, what do you think is the rationale why they would take this drug but be so skeptical about a vaccine? Robbie, I think this is kind of complex. Again, I think a lot of the vaccine hesitancy is due to the politicization of both the pandemic and the vaccine itself. Um, I'm suspecting, and I could be very wrong on this, that the people who are refusing the vaccine, saying that they don't fear the virus as much as they fear the vaccine, and would honestly, I think they will refuse to put anything related to fighting COVID into their body uh, due to all the conspiracy theories around it. Um, that being said, I think that there are some people who are just concerned about the mRNA aspect of the vaccine, uh, the fact that this is a newer technology and hasn't been around very long and isn't how traditional vaccines worked in the past and nothing else. I think they may very well be willing to take a therapeutic drug but still refuse the vaccine. Robbie, if all Americans had received the COVID vaccine, how many fewer of them would have died, do you think? Jeremy, if we assume that everyone who died in 2020, which was the first year of the pandemic, would have died anyway since there was no vaccine yet in existence, and then apply statistical estimates that about half of the remaining people who died would not have developed severe disease, then approximately 319,000 COVID deaths would have been avoided out of 1 million total people who died. And this is based upon the research from the Brown School of Public Health, the Harvard School of Public Health, and Microsoft's AI for Health. As you might guess, based upon the calculations done by the researchers, those states with relatively low vaccination rates, like West Virginia, Wyoming, Tennessee, Kentucky, and Oklahoma, were the places where the most lives would have been saved. I wish I could understand how a major medical advance with the chance to save hundreds of thousands of lives became, as you pointed out, so embroiled in the crazy political partisanship of this country, but it did. Either a vaccine works or it doesn't, but your perspective shouldn't be based upon whether you think that one political party or the other is best able to direct foreign policy or manage the economy or all the other tasks that elected officials must do. To me, as a physician, science is science. Sometimes we don't know the answers, but when we do, everyone should embrace it and follow the evidence. That's the way we would save the most lives. We lost tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, potentially as many as over 300,000 people, from my perspective, unnecessarily. And to me, that is a tragedy. With summer approaching, a listener wanted to know, where is the risk greater at a small indoor event or a large outdoor one? The data on this topic comes from the University of Texas. Research researchers show that smaller indoor events 
were more likely to spread COVID than bigger outdoor ones. The researchers compared the data from an outdoor festival with 50,000 attendees to a business conference that had 3,000 participants. Although the outdoor event was much more than 10 times greater in total attendees, it only led to a doubling in the total number of cases. As such, on a per-person basis, you're much safer at a larger outdoor festival than inside. This is, of course, what many of us would have predicted. Inside, the virus remains contained in an enclosed space, but outside is dispersed by the wind and into the air. Interestingly, the researchers also conducted, based on the data that they had, a comparison between enforcing a pre-event testing requirement and a mandatory vaccine requirement, and the pre-event testing requirement came out as far more efficacious. Once again, this is what we predict. A negative COVID test helps people who are shedding virus to not enter the venue. Well, vaccination best protects the person who received the shot from severe illness, but it doesn't eliminate infection or the ability of individuals to transmit the disease to others. But as we saw after the correspondence dinner in Washington, D.C. that we talked about in our last show, even testing isn't foolproof. The reason is that the at-home rapid tests require a moderate viral load to turn positive, and someone can be below that limit the day before the event, but above that level for transmissibility when they enter the concert hall or sporting arena. All this is good news for Iowa football fans like yourself, but not as comforting to the school's basketball fanatics. A listener wanted to know about monkeypox. Is it similar to COVID? And kind of what are your thoughts on the future of that disease? Talk about feeling deja vu all over again. Pandemic number one is almost over, and the headlines are warning of a potential pandemic number two. So far, there have been nine documented monkeypox cases in the U.S. and around 200 worldwide. Epidemiologists aren't certain, but it appears that a couple of raves in Europe, including one in the Canary Islands, that included sexual encounters between men were the source of these infections that had previously only originated in Africa. Listeners should understand that this isn't the disease I've ever seen or even heard about before the recent episodes. As such, my information comes from the medical reports I have read. But most infectious disease experts don't believe that it will be a repeat of anything like COVID. The monkeypox virus is related to the smallpox virus. There are two main types. One from West Africa has a low mortality rate, around 1%. A second from the Congo Basin, on the other hand, has a lethality far greater at around 10%. Fortunately, the current strain that we're seeing, the one spread in Europe and across the US appears more similar to the milder West African type. The disease starts with flu-like symptoms and lymph node swelling six to 13 days after exposure. A few days after the flu-like symptoms, patients develop a pathognomonic blistering rash with pus-filled bumps. The smallpox vaccine is felt to provide good immunity against monkeypox. Unlike with Omicron, transmission is relatively limited and requires very close personal contact with an infected individual. This virus has been documented in the US before, but only in people who had been to Africa, including a case last year in Texas 
and another in Maryland. The transmission from Europe, that's highly unusual. Fortunately, because the time between exposure and the patient becoming very ill is relatively long, doctors have multiple options for treatment, including both vaccination to boost immunity and antiviral medications to treat the disease itself. Returning to COVID, a listener wants to know if there is an example of a situation in which infection is better than vaccination. Let me begin by pointing out that multiple exposures whether three vaccinations or two vaccinations plus infection are better than just two vaccine shots alone, but the two vaccine shots alone are better than having had the disease once. So listeners shouldn't be complacent, even if they had a prior infection, but have yet to also be vaccinated. Having said that, I can think of one situation that meets the listener's criterion, and it's educational relative to future immunity. Two studies have shown that a breakthrough infection, meaning someone who had, has had two shots and then contracts COVID, is better protected than someone who has three shots. Putting it in poker terms, two shots plus infection beats three shots in the same way that three aces beat three kings. Researchers from the University of Washington tested blood samples of vaccinated plus breakthrough infected people and found more antibodies than they did in three other groups of individuals. It was better than patients who first had COVID and then received the two shots. It was better than those who were vaccinated but never infected. It was better than those who were infected but never vaccinated. The sequence is obviously key. Two shots plus infection means that the person's body has responded to Omicron as well as the vaccination giving them broad protection against previous strains. While infection followed by vaccination would have exposed the person's immune system to a more limited number of strains since the immunity generated by both the vaccine and early exposure would have been directed to the spike proteins on the original viral strain only. Who want to think poker again? Three of any kind is better than a pair. A pair is always better than an ace, but a straight, meaning exposure to various variants over time beats three of any kind. Further support of that conclusion, BioNTech, the company that partners with Pfizer on vaccines, looked at what's called the B cell response. This is our body's ability to generate new antibodies rather than simply measuring the circulating antibodies. B cells are a second part of the immune system and they are major contributors to our ability to fend off a virus and other infections. Now, researchers found that people who were vaccinated and then became infected had a better B cell response than individuals who had three vaccine doses but had not been infected. Putting all this research together, it's clear, no one should go out and try to become infected. However, with breakthrough infections becoming more common, we're gonna see broad immunity being generated and that will reduce the risk of severe disease in most people and accounts for why cases are soaring but deaths are staying relatively low. The data also points to the value of a new vaccine aimed at Omicron could have. It would target the various 
new spike proteins found in Omicron when it's compared to the original strain, and therefore be more protective, similar to the data on infection following vaccination. Many policy experts are hoping the vaccine manufacturers will do just that later this year. And consistent with that possibility, Robert Califf, the FDA commissioner, wrote an opinion piece in which he said, it's likely we're gonna see a new normal, in which people will receive an annual COVID-19 vaccine, along with the seasonal influenza vaccine. There's no reason to doubt that something like this will not become the new normal. Probably listeners continue to thank us for focusing on the broader issues of healthcare and bringing the same honest analysis in these areas uh, as we do when it comes to coronavirus. What can you tell them this week? Jeremy, I fear that we're about to enter an era where the rising costs of healthcare that have challenged people in the past will now reach the breaking point. Rising salaries for both nurses and support staff and supply chain problems are causing hospitals to raise their prices by as much as 15%. Most hospital contracts and insurance premiums are set a year or more in advance. So unlike at the pumps and in grocery stores, medical costs have yet to get on the inflation escalator, but they will. And with businesses struggling, you can expect employees to be hit in the pocketbook. In another story, the CDC announced that death in the U.S. from drug overdoses climbed last year to 107,000. One reason is how often illicit drugs like heroin are now being laced with a highly potent drug, fentanyl. Another is the mental health challenges people experienced during the current coronavirus pandemic. A couple of years ago, for comparison, deaths averaged fifty dollars to $60,000 a year. They're now double that. Jeremy, the challenges in healthcare grow year by year with more Americans unable to afford the medical care they require. How active do you, both as an employer and a patient, believe the government should be at driving lower prices and demanding easier healthcare access? Robbie, I know I'm going to come across as very jaded on this one, and I honestly don't know what the right answer is. I do feel the government should do what it can to drive lower prices and uh, provide better access to care. But the problem is that our elected officials are so heavily influenced by the healthcare, pharmaceutical, and insurance lobbies that the influence on our elected officials from these lobbies will likely prevent them from driving the real change that needs to be made. Uh, look at Obamacare, for example, greatly expanded access to a very broken system. Until our politicians care more about their constituents than they do the lobbies, I don't really see any real change happening. So, Robbie, to sum it up, I'd say I do think the government should make change, and I do see you know, the government making highly publicized baby steps, but I don't see any of the real change that needs to happen actually being made. Robbie, any parting thoughts? Jeremy, I'd like to return to what's happening in China and the lessons it teaches us about this pandemic. Frequently, we hear about the value of testing and the importance of social distancing. And both can be important when understood as to their impact. Both are ways to buy time, but neither provides immunity. Early in the pandemic, buying time was vital. We didn't have a vaccine and the medications available were minimally effective at best. 
but buying time only works if there's an end game that's clearly defined. If a virus will disappear when the weather becomes warm, the strategy is to buy time until the end of the winter. That's what we do relative to the flu. But it doesn't work in the context of COVID, a year-round infection. And if the strategy is to protect people until a vaccine is available, that's logical as well. But if the future will be similar to today, buying time doesn't do much. Possibly China's strategy was to buy time until the rest of the world became infected and herd immunity eliminated the virus from around the globe. But if that was the case, then they should have changed direction months ago when it became clear that Omicron would make that outcome impossible. Maybe their strategy was to buy time so people wouldn't realize that the vaccine the country produced and gave to other nations wasn't nearly as good as the mRNA vaccines from the United States. And if that were the case, the government should have doubled down on developing a next generation vaccine, one that was as good as what we've produced in the United States and quickly began getting it into the arms of its citizens many, many months ago. What the Omicron demonstrates is that even a totalitarian regime with strict controls can't defeat this virus forever. Omicron will ultimately gain a large enough foothold in China that shutting down massive cities won't be successful. Ultimately, a country either needs a plan to broadly protect its people through vaccination or a willingness to let the virus run rampant until it produces equally strong immunity, albeit leaving in its wake massive loss of life. As long as there are susceptible people, the virus will find them. That's the reality in the US and that's the reality in China. The country and its leaders are now caught between a rock and a hard place. A far better option would have been for China to acquire the best vaccines and administer them to all of its 1.4 billion people. Maybe that's what they're doing and buying time is what they need, but I doubt it. When politics get in the way of science, people die unnecessarily, whether in China or in the United States. As a reminder to listeners, this episode is available on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com and on all podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and share it with your friends and family. To submit a question or comment to the host, please visit the contact page on our website or send us a message on Twitter, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Thank you for listening to Coronavirus The Truth and have a great day.